0: There's nothing more thrilling
1: than nailing an insurance company. And the truth just set you free! I want the truth!
0: You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born from great opportunity. Alright, alright. Welcome everyone back to uh, an episode of the On Justice podcast. Actually, this is our first live edition, so for those of you tuning in live to the podcast, welcome. Uh, uh, We have... As always, my very talented uh, partner, um, Jordan Redavid, with me as well here on the podcast. And uh, we're excited to talk about the recent case. Uh, I don't know if anyone's heard about it. It's the uh, McDonald's hot chicken nugget case that is spreading across the nation and the globe, creating a really polarizing viewpoint on what's appropriate, what should have happened, what didn't happen without many people nearly knowing any of the facts of the case from the small snippet of what the media portrayed in the public. So we're going to to talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we won twice in legal courts. Today we're going to try and earn some ground back in the court of public opinion. The only member of the trial team that is not with us today, but I want to give her her shout-out, is Keela Smith. She tried phase two with us but uh, is not joining us on the podcast today. But the three of us, or John and I, we tried the case in Broward County, Florida Circuit Court. Judge David Hames presided, and we got the verdict on Wednesday of this week. It was a three-day trial. So I think it's important, even though everyone's talking about this most recent verdict, to step back and think about how we got here. I want to kind of educate the people out there on the legal process generally in Florida, how it works, and then more specifically in this case, how it actually unfolded. So although this was one personal injury lawsuit on behalf of a minor child who was burned by Chicken McNuggets, the lawsuit was bifurcated for purposes of trial, meaning it was split into two equal phases. Phase one, it was determined by the court, would only deal with the issues of liability, meaning whether or not the franchisee and or corporate McDonald's was responsible in any way legally for what happened to Olivia, the minor plaintiff. And then if so, meaning if we prove that one or both defendants were liable, then the court gave us permission to have a whole second trial with a new jury to determine the extent of Olivia's damages. So we went to trial in phase one on liability. That was in May. So we showed up to a courthouse in Broward County and a bunch of members of the community came in as prospective jurors. John, do you remember how many prospective jurors we had for phase one?
0: I think we got 30 in the first phase. That's what we had in the first phase, I believe. So
1: in Florida, jury selection requires that ultimately at least six people are selected and sworn to serve as jurors. We typically get seven so that we have an alternate in case somebody gets sick or some emergency happens and somebody has to leave mid-trial. So that's what we did in May. We impaneled a jury of seven people, ultimately six decided it. And for those who are listening outside of Florida, or even if you're in Florida and you're uncertain, or unfamiliar of how the legal process works, you need unanimous verdicts in Florida. So all six jurors have to agree on the outcome. So when we went to trial in May, we were bringing claims against Upchurch Foods Incorporated. That is a Florida corporation. It operates 40 different McDonald's restaurants throughout South Florida. we had various theories of liability, meaning we were alleging that they were responsible for what happened for any number of reasons. And the law allows you to plead alternative theories. So for example, you could say you're negligent for failing to warn someone verbally. You could say you're negligent for packaging the food too quickly, preparing the food unreasonably, any number of things. So we pled a variety of theories against Stop Church. But we also had theories of liability against McDonald's USA LLC which is really the formal corporate entity for what everyone would refer to globally as McDonald's. It's the large corporation. Before we ever got to trial in phase one in May, both Upchurch Foods and McDonald's had categorically denied any wrongdoing. This was not a circumstance where liability was admitted or conceded. It was hotly contested for years. And John, maybe you can explain how before we even got to get to trial in May, Um, what it's like to go into a trial knowing that the only thing you have to do is convince jurors that one or both defendants is liable. It's a pretty polarizing case, so you have to tread lightly.
0: So, so yeah, I think it was, you know, it's very interesting to have uh, a bifurcated trial. This actually was our first bifurcated trial, meaning liability was the only thing we were deciding damages to come if we win on liability. And I think that, you know, I used to think that bifurcation was a bad thing, right? And and the reason is is because if there's a lot of bad misconduct on behalf of the defendant, that jury gets to hear that misconduct, they get to see how they respond to that, you know, and if they're very dismissive of the claims, which they were, then they could You know, not necessarily use it against them in the damages phase, but they are going to use it against them in the damages phase. Really, not a punishment, but a a recognition that, okay, they said they were responsible. We don't believe that. That's bullshit. And, you know, we think that they're saying the same thing when they're saying they're not hurt. So, But when you came in, it kind of changed... Who I look for as an ideal juror, I didn't have to worry about the, the damages questions, like people that may be opposed to large verdict awards, um, non economic damages. You know, they hate all personal injury lawyers. Like, we looked at people that talked about, you know, personal responsibility, community responsibility, you know, uh, corporate responsibility, um, and looked at all of those things, you know, and could say, you know what, I can sit here and decide what's right, what's wrong. And, and I think I need to make this clear for everyone because there's this misconception. Everyone's like, oh, it's the mom's fault, it's the mom's fault, it's the mom's fault. McDonald's USA and Upchurch Foods did not claim it was mom's fault in the trial. They did not raise any negligence on behalf of the mother. They did not say that they did anything wrong. Okay, so that wasn't an issue because it's really not an issue. Um, you know, and, and it, when you understand the facts of the case, what the mom did in terms of <coughs> Giving a happy meal to a child, basically a product that, in the case everyone agreed to, was intended for a child, directed towards a child, you know, that they're the end user customer, you know, her handing it to them uh, was not unreasonable and nothing was wrong with that. And, you know, despite every single person I've read in the comments, that like, oh, I check every single food ever before it ever goes out to my kid, you know, whether or not that's actually true, I I don't think that's true. But that's not
1: the legal standard, right? Right. The standard is... a reasonable person would do and to to clarify just one point when mcdonald's and upchurch were first forced to defend the lawsuit they did allege as one of their variety of defenses that the mom was at fault in part right so for years in discovery and pretrial motions that was on the table but on the eve of trial in phase one back in may strategically they decided to stipulate mom's not at fault i think it was good decision for them i don't think the verdict against them in phase one would have been any different had they blamed mom in fact i think we still would have won and maybe even with a faster deliberation because under the guide under the through the lens rather of reasonableness this question is not whether you as an individual person unique to yourself in your own idiosyncratic ways checks food for its you know its temperature before you hand it to a child the question is whether it was unreasonable for felena to simply grab the happy meal box from the window and hand it back to her children. And if you really think about it through the lens of reasonableness, every parent does that, or I should say the overwhelming majority of parents do that. And if that's what they do, that makes it reasonable. And I think that's why both defendants decided to not make that an issue, at least formally. But John, maybe you could talk a little bit going back to phase one. Even though the defense stipulated mom wasn't at fault, it certainly felt like they were trying to suggest, even if subtly, to the jury that she was.
0: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, They didn't want to come out and explicitly say, you know, mom's at fault and have to put her name on the verdict form. And then they have the burden to prove, you know what, what she did by handing those chicken nuggets, like she should have known those nuggets were going to burn her kids. I think that defeats the purpose of them saying, you know, "We, we didn't do anything wrong. It's not foreseeable. They would have had to say the mom should have foreseen that handing it to the nuggets, it would have burned her child. And I think that's why they had to tactically or strategically remove that issue from the jury but they still said they still kind of argued it like they wanted to show the video and in, in jury selection the attorneys for mcdonald's asked well, how many of you have handed your food in a happy meal to a child without at least looking it up and checking to see how hot it is i mean those were the kind of questions they were asking and surprisingly i mean based upon the comments that after the fact nearly every single person was like i don't check i give it i i trust that the McDonald's company is going to hand it um, and have it saved, so I don't check. And wha- here's what's interesting. During trial, one of a member of our trial team, uh, House in the France, a little shout-out, uh, found a YouTube um, advertisement from McDo's. Now, McDo's is – McDonald's is an international corporation, so McDo's is what they call it in the Philippines like Mickey D's here in the United States – and they had an advertisement of a family, mom and dad, pulling into a drive-thru, ordering a Happy Meal, and then giving it back to a child sitting in a car seat and then pulling out and eating chicken nuggets in her car seat. Why is that important? Well, the issue was whether or not it was foreseeable that a child would eat a chicken nugget with their hands in the car seat and potentially drop it. When, and here they have advertisements showing precisely the, the setup for our case – and you know the question was: Is it foreseeable that a kid could drop it? And, and you know, the uh, corporate representative for McDonald's in trial—I remember this because I was I was examining him, and I said, "Look, like kids when they grab something that's hot, they could drop it." And he was like, "Well, yeah, they're gonna put it back into the box." I was like, "Do you have kids? You know, yeah. what what kid do you have? No, that's like, oh my god, it's hot, and then puts it back. No, they just drop it. Four years old, they're gonna be like, ow, and drop it. So I think that was very helpful to combat the idea that mom did something wrong even implicitly um you know
1: and And the jury rejected it like ultimately that verdict from phase one to me putting aside like from a technicality standpoint what theory did the jury find most persuasive ultimately what it did is it rejected the notion that mom was at fault for sure and it clarified that both the franchisee and mcdonald's corporate have shared responsibility here. You know, uh, we did a full podcast after the May trial on the liability phase one. So I don't want to rehash everything. And maybe, Justin, you could put a link in the show notes, you know, to wherever it is on Spotify or YouTube, because we did a full-blown deep dive there. But this is now relevant to the phase two trial we just had here in July of 2023, which is that after phase one, the media started to report that verdict as a split one. they, They literally called it a split verdict, which suggests i think wrongly although i don't think there's any malice here it's just reporters doing their best at their level of awareness it suggested that the jurors somehow split the baby and decided well maybe they're at fault a little bit but not a lot that's not a thing it was an all or nothing it was here's all the evidence and here's all the theories jury if you think the greater weight of the evidence supports liability for any number of theories one or more check yes and they did check yes to one theory for each defendant which is another way of saying The jury found, with certainty, both defendants are responsible. And when it comes down to McDonald's, you know, this is a product at the end of the day, and the theory against McDonald's that the jury in phase one found was a failure to warn, like a strict liability failure to warn. And when you're thinking through that, ask yourself, well, why would the jury have found that in phase one? It's easy if you're sitting back and you don't know the details of the case to say everybody wants hot food. That wasn't the evidence in this case. The evidence here was McDonald's basically conceding through its experts and corporate representative that they are knowingly preparing the nuggets and then serving them at temperatures capable of burning children with second-degree burns. And so the question was, well, if you're doing that, even if you're doing it for legitimate reasons—you want them crispy, you want them feeling fresh, tasting whatever—fine. But if you know you have to cook them at a temperature that can burn children, then shouldn't you warn? Because parents, conversely, should not reasonably expect that when you hand them a Happy Meal box the contents of it could disfigure their children within seconds of touching it. And that's what the jury understood. So um, go back, watch that other episode. I encourage you to. And if you still have questions, you know, give a shout out to our firm or Justin, and we can answer them through social media. But let's switch gears and flash forward in time. So we win <clears> phase <throat> one in May. The judge says now you're entitled to phase two, which is a completely separate jury trial. You have to find new jurors. So you got to bring a different perspective jurors. You got to find a new six, maybe seven to pick and present all the evidence about Olivia's damages. So after phase one, we go to phase two. Now there's some new evidentiary issues in the case. Why? And John, maybe you can talk about, we decided to waive entitlement to economic damages and ask the jury only to consider non-economic. Maybe you can educate our audience out here as to the difference between the two.
0: Sure, so when when you're thinking of damages in a trial, like a personal injury matter, there's really, well, I'd say there's two categories of damage, right? Economic uh, losses, uh, we, we some lawyers refer to those as as paycheck losses. You've got medical bills and lost wages, right? And that would be in the past and then those to be incurred in the future. Then you've got the non-economic damages. And non-economic is the more, I don't know, tan- it's, I would say, tangential, but it's not something that you can say, here's a hard to find number. That's the physical pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering, mental anguish, inconvenience, loss of the enjoyment of life, humiliation, fear, um, aggravation of an existing disease, like disability, disfigurement, impairment, like all of these uh, things are non-economics. Now, because uh, the, the, the medical bills, obviously, I- if they're if they're a small monetary amount, like we tend to waive the medical bills. Um, so we don't make a claim for economic damages. And because <coughs> we just... It's a low number, and you know when you're when you're lawyers and you're trying to have a uh, significant recovery, if they have a low number in the case, you know, sometimes jurors can latch onto that. They call that a low anchor. and defendants do that all the time. They want to put in a low anchor uh, to keep the juries thinking of low numbers. and
1: it's hard to even if another way of thinking this is it's hard for jurors from a psychological standpoint to say, I want to give this person, let's say, $100,000 for non-economic, those intangible things John talked about, pain, suffering, whatever, but I'm looking at her economic damages, the medical bills, for example, not in this case, but in another case, let's say they're only 1000 bucks. It's hard for jurors to say, well, it's only 1000 bucks for medical bills, but wait, now I want to give 100 times that for pain and suffering, right? Even if they know the greater way of the evidence supports it, psychologically, there's an impediment there, and so jurors sometimes have a habit to award less than they otherwise might which isn't fair in our view, but it's human nature. So one of the ways we can mitigate the risk of that, like John said, is strategically to talk with our clients and say, look, we understand there are some medical expenses here, but we feel like if we don't talk about those at trial, if we waive entitlement to ask for reimbursement of those from the jury and only ask the jury to focus on the human losses, those intangible non-economics, we stand a greater chance of them actually giving you full and fair justice for that. And that's typically where the substantial recovery lies. So. This was another case, it wasn't the first time we did it, but where we, with the client's consent, strategically waived past and future economic damages to focus the jury only on non-economic. Now, it's good from a legal strategy, but conceptually, it has a lot of complications because that John can attest to, more often than not, jurors don't have an issue assigning fault or blame. They can do that with confidence. More often than not, jurors can provide reimbursement of medical expenses or even Give you an amount of money that they think will reasonably cover your future medical expenses somehow that's easier to do when it comes down to assigning a value to pain and suffering it feels arbitrary to many people if the most common question we get in what jury selection is how am i supposed to do that because the law in florida and it should say this is there's no exact formula there's no specific way to get there you just have to do what you feel is right and that becomes very uncomfortable for some jurors Um, Because everybody knows money doesn't make pain go away and they can't buy you a time machine with it either. But the flip side of that coin is if we don't give people money, what are we supposed to give them? You know, John talked about that. So let's actually get into jury selection from phase two of the McDonald's hot nugget case. John did jury selection. Let me just tee it up for him a little bit. So in this phase, the judge recognized we had filed a motion asking for a larger number of prospective jurors than usual. In phase one he didn't give us that relief but it was okay in phase two he recognized all right you've won phase one not only are people drawing analogies to the hot coffee case from the 90s but now even our case in phase one made national and international news which means a lot of people read about it drew conclusions had strong personal feelings about it why does that matter it increases the likelihood that people were going to show up from broward county and say I have a bias one way or the other already about this case, and there's no way I could be fair. So instead of bringing 25 or 30 jurors, Judge Hames, and thank you for that, he brought 50 prospective jurors. So a substantial increase from what we otherwise might have had. Why does that matter? It increases the likelihood that from that 50, we'll be able to find six or seven that at least for all intents and purposes could be fair and impartial. So 50 people showed up on Monday. All we did on Monday was the court Us, through John, and the defense, through lead defense counsel, took turns asking questions of these 50 people on a variety of subjects to try and elicit responses to decide whether or not we felt like, collectively, they could be fair and impartial. And if you're wondering if we needed 50, the answer is yes. I don't remember exactly, but I think it took us into the 40s before we finally had a jury picked, and um, that's another way of saying if the judge had only brought 25 or 30 like usual, we would have busted the panel, which is just a legal way of saying had to start all over again. There wouldn't have been a, a jury to pick from. So John, can you kind of take us through your jury selection, how you felt in the moment? Um, We did have the benefit of a jury consultant. I want to give a shout out to jury X. We use them often. And the consultant that we use most often is Mary Sheedy. She was phenomenal this time as she has been in the past.
0: Yeah. I mean, jury selection is, you know, the, I think fundamentally the most important part of the jury trial Um because if you're starting out with, you know, and you don't need jurors that are on your side, right? You don't need jurors that are going to be favoring me over the defense. What you don't want is the ones that have all the negative bias against the plaintiff and really are in favor of the defense. So we had to root out <clears throat> a lot of individuals that were like there was going to be press involved in the case. There was, I think there were a few jurors that had indicated they heard about the trial.
1: <clears throat> but less than sorry to throw, but less than I thought, I think if memory serves only five or six people admitted to having seen or read media coverage of phase one, I thought there would be at least half the panel, but there wasn't as much as I thought.
0: Yeah, there was only did
1: a you think that some people were hiding though, and not being completely honest, or did you think that was an accurate representation? It, you know
0: it's it's hard to say It's like, you know, who wants to be the sleeper agent? Like I want to blow this case up. And like I honestly, I don't like to think that that jurors would do that. I like to think that once you start the process, that they're open and honest. Type, you know, I talk about brutal honesty in the beginning and all this, and I'm brutally honest with them. I'm, uh, you know, so I think that g- just really trying to find the individuals that can be fair and open minded and and yeah, we, of the people that had heard about the case before, everyone was like, this mom is stupid, she, it's her fault. Jurors, right yeah, right, right in front stupid. of my client's face, like, she's, this is all her fault, like, they're, you're gone, like, you know, and we got rid of all those jurors, and so, we went through, and, and I mean, look, we had, we had a tough panel, you know, we had a, t- we had a tough panel, and we had a lot of people that had very negative feelings about personal injury lawsuits, very negative feelings towards non-economic damages, very negative feelings towards a variety of subjects, you know, one of the things I wasn't allowed to, to really get into, which, you know, I don't I, don't, I disagree with the, the ruling of the court, but, you know, wasn't allowed to talk to them about big numbers. Like, look, like the, you've seen these verdicts for 30 million dollars. If the evidence would support uh, that uh, an award of 30 million dollars based upon your negative feeling, like, could you sign your name to that? And you got to know. And some jurors are like, I don't care what the evidence is. I'm never putting a, a valuation that high. I'm never signing my name. And I wasn't allowed to do that.
1: And, I think and a lot of people might—let me just say this. A lot of people hear you say that, and I fear that without like some legal training, even lawyers who maybe don't try cases might assume, but really you're just trying to find people who would be favorable and give you big numbers. No, that's not the purpose of the question. It never was, and that's why I think John said we disagreed with how the court ruled, although we respected it and, and adhered to it. The reason you ask that question is, what you're really asking is this. Even if all the evidence in a case the greater weight of the evidence, you know, the greater weight of the evidence supports a verdict of 30 million or 50 million or 100 million. Pick a number out of a hat. You know it, which means you know the law requires you to sign your name to that verdict. Would you nevertheless not do it for some other reason, i.e., personal prejudice, bias, or pre existing beliefs that you can't set aside? So it's really another way of saying you can't follow the law. But of right. course, if you just said raise your hand if you won't follow the law, no one would raise their hand. Everybody. And it should be this way. Everybody believes they can be fair, believes they can follow the law. So the purpose of John's question was to give them specific examples, like a hypothetical, where they would then reveal perhaps an inherent bias that they didn't even know they had. Yeah,
0: and what I I thought was most interesting, we actually had a a member of the jury and the panel who was a – like Up Church Foods – an owner-operator of McDonald's franchises. I think he. I think he may have I won't sure. use his name,
1: but number eighteen. Perspectives are number eighteen, yeah. right?
0: And and you know he was like, I I know Mister Upchurch. I've known him for twenty years. All this kind of stuff. And we were like, look, we move to exclude him for cause. And what what when you when you have a cause challenge for those of you who aren't you know lawyers or, or don't try cases. You're basically saying, look, I'd, I have a reasonable doubt as to whether or not this juror can be fair and impartial based upon X, Y, and C." And we said, like, look, this guy has known him for 20 years. He even told me he might come into his mind. Like, he's going to try to be fair, but it might come into his mind. Like, these are people he works with. He has to answer to McDonald's. Didn't he say him and his wife
1: owned and operated four McDonald's and four Lauderdale? Too? I, think,
0: I think so. I think it was four. But, it, but the opposing party— i.e. E. McDonald's, was like, we we object to that. Like, he can be fair. And, you know, and I think to the judge's credit, you know, he kind of was like, are you kidding me? Like, you, McDonald's, think that your employee, basically the same franchisee or another franchisee like Upchurch and who knew Upchurch is going to is gonna be the right juror for this case? He's like, so tell me if, he was like, and t- he said, so if it was, uh, the plaintiff's next door neighbor, and they were best friends for twenty years, grew him up. You're going to say that that's going to be fair, and you're not going to be jumping up and down about that. And he was, and they were just like, well, we think he could be fair, and I think the judge is like, oh no, he's out. And you know, I think that <clears throat> if you're if you're going to practice, like you got to be like, you know, I had somebody that was like, I'm going to be too favorable because because it's going to be a child, you know, and I'm going to be biased because I got a, you know, our client had uh, a developmental di- uh, disorder. And they're like, my niece has that, and I'm going to be biased against the defense. And you know what I said? She's got to go. I mean, that's that's what you do. You don't try to get in people that are, and that's what they're trying to do. And I think the judge, you know, to his to his credit, really was what was not having that. So um, that kind of stuck out in my mind from jury selection. But overall, you know, we got a, I think we got a, the best jury we could have gotten out of there. Um, you know, he had,
1: exhausted. Um, like, correct me if I'm wrong. I think we. So in Florida, let me step back for a minute. John just talked about cause challenges. Those are unlimited. Any party at any time can raise a cause challenge, which, as John said, is just saying, here's something that this person said or did that gives us a reasonable doubt as to his or her ability to be fair and impartial. You can raise any number of those. Then you have peremptory challenges, not preempt, but peremptory challenges. Each side only has three. We exhausted our three, and those are challenges you can use for basically any reason, as long as it's not pretextual and you're just trying to strike some, for example, all women or all black people or all any number of a protected class, you know, the purpose is supposed to be fair, but just to say, I don't know, I just don't have a good feeling. Each side gets three. We exhausted all three and actually had to ask the court for permission to, to get a fourth, which he gave. And thank you, Judge James, for doing that. I think it was a correct legal basis to do it. He it uses the discretion. So we had to use not only all three, but even an additional one. But ultimately, to John's point, we did select seven people, one of which was an alternate, but seven people total, which we felt like collectively comprised you know, the most fair and impartial people that we could have decide this case. But, um, so that was jury selection. That took all day Monday. Um, then after we pick a jury, they go home. This was like maybe 4.30 p.m., um, and the judge took up what's called motions eliminate. So these are pretrial motions that either side can file, and they basically foreshadow to the trial court, hey, here's something that's going to come up or we think it will come up in the evidence or an argument we anticipate the other side making, I'd like you to give us a ruling now. You don't do this for every last thing on earth because some things are just best left to happen contemporaneously in trial. And you don't want to burden the court. But you have to do it for things that could cause a mistrial, for example, or things you need some clarification on so you know how to present your own case when trial starts. So we did that. And even though, this, you know, I'm not, not gonna talk about all the issues, but one of the things that came up was we had waived all economic damages, which we talked about. We're not asking for money for past medical bills or future. The defense agreed that because we waived past medical bills, they wouldn't talk about the value of those. But they disagreed by saying, well, even though we're not asking for money for future medical care, they nevertheless wanted to inject into trial that they believe the cost of a future scar revision surgery was 4,700 bucks. Now, Step back. Why did they want to do that? And I don't blame them for wanting to. They wanted to do it from an advocacy standpoint to give the jury what? A low anchor. So that when the jury heard us talking about millions, they would have a medical bill in front of them that said 4,700 bucks. And psychologically, I think the defense hoped it would have an impact. We argued against it. And I believe in my heart still today that the judge got it wrong because he allowed them to introduce it. John argued this issue for us. And what John basically said is they're trying to give the jury a low anchor, but but they're really telling you, judges, this goes to the feasibility of whether or not she'll get this future surgery. The defense had raised what's called the mitigation of damages defense. It's an affirmative defense that basically says we shouldn't be responsible for certain damages if the only reason they're going to be there is because you chose not to get care that you should have got. That's basically what it means. Yeah. But the defense knew that the only care at issue in the future was surgery and that this eight-year-old child had never been told to get it since, you know, from four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and was told in the medical records, if she gets it ever, it won't be until in her into her adolescence. So it was very speculative to suggest to the court, I thought, that this was something she must get and wouldn't. Nevertheless, the court disagreed, even though John said what they're really trying to do also is backdoor in the relative wealth of the parties. So in Florida, the jury is not to consider the wealth of the parties. And think about it. It's a fundamental fairness thing it shouldn't be fair to McDonald's if we could go to trial and say they make $5 billion a year. And that the reason it's not fair is because then the jury will just give a ton of money thinking they can afford it. But the flip side of that coin is you shouldn't inject the relative, you know, middle-class or low-class or above middle-class, you know, it doesn't matter how much money the plaintiffs are making. That's not probative of their damages. And so I think the court got it wrong by letting it in, but he did let it in. And so we had to deal with that starting and opening statements. Um, Opening statements began on Tuesday, and Tuesday was a really big day for us because we started opening statements first thing Tuesday morning, and we went all the way through. We rested our case, the defense called witnesses, and then ultimately they basically rested their case. Very unusual scenario. John, maybe you could talk like in the average case, even a short one, it's usually like three, four days before both sides rest. This was a one and done
0: yeah i mean you know look joe free talks about the speed trial you know where he's in a day and a half able to get you know like 14 witnesses and six experts you know w- we did we got through um you know three of our basically four witnesses in the day and that was it <clears throat> i mean that was the case and i think because liability is done it's just damages you know it, it kind of really short tracks the presentation of evidence so we had we called mom to testify first, then we called our burn expert, which was Dr. Joshua Carson, which, you know, I, I've seen a lot of, you know, I, I don't know, I've tried what, 25 cases now. Um, I, I've seen a lot of experts testify in trial, and this was really one of the best experts I've seen in terms of the way he presented and the way he connected with the jury, the way he dealt with like impeachment. I mean, just, he seemed like like an average guy. That's a genius if that makes any sense, I, you know, that just, you know, he was like, you know, that he was swiveling in his chair. And usually I don't, I don't like that because I'm like, you look like you're, you know, you're not honest, but the way he was so smart and, and so responsive and even with the defense and kind of broke things down for the jury and really made it simple, you know, I think, I, you know, I was really impressed. And this was the, we had him on another case, you know, we had met him because he was the former director of the burn clinic um, at there in Gainesville at UF Shands and we had him on a case in the Gainesville area he has since moved to Chicago and i think he's at Loyola and he's the burn director i think he's one of the main if not the top burn doctor in all of the state of Illinois and you know we kept in touch and said listen we've got this case we've got this young girl like can, can you come down and you know he he did it and he handled it well and we kind of so we broke up mom and dad with him he explained a lot he was the only burn doctor in the case the defense went out and hired like a local plastic surgeon um, you know, and I'm going to let Jordan talk to you about the plastic surgeon, and in, ter- in terms of whether how the defense didn't give them all the records, didn't have them all the photographs. He was learning about things for the first time in trial, which is never good for an expert. Like they should know everything. You should. And um, we broke it up, and then Dad testified, and we rested. And that was it though? Three witnesses. for us. And we were done. You know, it's like three thirty. We called the defense doctor, or they did. Jordan did cross examination. And, you know, that was the case, you know, and that, and that was something that, you know, it's never really one, it's never one day, you know, it's usually opening statements, case the next day, then maybe we will closing on Thursday, which I, I think we ended up a little bit like that in liability. And I think if all the cases were together, it'll take longer, but having them separated really made it a short draw.
1: Yeah, and I I think the, the jury's verdict is only reflective of the evidence and they're applying the evidence to the law. It doesn't reflect... Expedience or, or gratefulness for us getting it done so quick. But if you step back and for the lawyers out there, those who try cases or aspire to try cases, John mentioned in passing Joe Freed's speed trial method. You know, I think he's kind of pioneering it, but it, you know, it's something that you can make your own. Have some respect for the juror's time. Lawyers like to talk, especially those lawyers who try cases in court. I get it. Um, I fall, you know, I'm a victim of doing that myself. But Jurors are already being massively inconvenienced. They're away from their family. They're away from their jobs. No matter how focused they are, they're thinking about things going on in their own life. So don't prolong trial needlessly by doing a two-hour direct examination when 20 minutes will suffice. Don't do a four-hour cross-examination when 40 minutes will suffice. And jurors pick up on that, I believe, especially if you're the one moving quickly not missing anything, but moving quickly. And the other side is dragging things out. You know, they may not pick it up the first examination, but after two, three, four, five witnesses, the jury starts to think, hey, one side is on the ball and moving this thing forward. The other side is just talking. Um, And I feel like this is just a personal belief that from an advocacy standpoint, it's far more persuasive when you can be in and out quickly than it is when you're just talking for the sake of it. So we did opening statements. Um, This is the first time where the defense... Uh, learned that one of the arguments we intended to make was that having Olivia subjected to two separate compulsory medical examinations, we believed entitled her to recover additional money. So let's hit the pause button here and let me just step back and bird's eye view this thing. In any personal injury case in the state of Florida, the defense asked the court basically for permission to conduct what's called a compulsory medical examination, or CME for short. The Florida Rule of Civil Procedure is 1.360. So there is a rule of procedure that exists that gives the court the discretion to grant it. Now, as a matter of common practice, in like 99% of, p- of personal injury cases I've handled in Florida, when the defense just asks us, hey, can you coordinate your, your client to be available for an exam, a CME, we do it. So although the law doesn't say they're entitled to it as a matter of law, they have to show good cause as a courtesy, we almost always just say yes. And in this case, we did. So in July 2020, Olivia was brought to the defense expert with her mother for a CME. And that expert was Dr. Yoav Barnavon He is a plastic surgeon. He did an in-person examination of Olivia in July 2020, so three years before trial, and wrote a report. That report was favorable for us, or so we felt. Uh, it said in pretty much in black and white. She has a scar. It's consistent with the history reported of a hot nugget. It's permanent. And if she, if anything can ever help this scar, even just a little bit, it's gonna be a future surgery. Well, that's pretty favorable for a plaintiff because that's the defense expert, meaning the best expert they could find says, we agree she's burned, it's permanent and all that. So we didn't depose Dr. Barnavond or any of that. We get closer to trial, uh, phase two of the trial And all of a sudden, literally a few days before we're about to start, the defense files a motion. They want to request a second CME, the same doctor. Um, The law begins to change here. So whereas in order to get one CME, the expectation is the defense has to show good cause. Now, in order to get a second CME, you need to show something more than good cause. And typically the appellate courts require some showing of a substantial change in circumstance. So think of another case. Let's say somebody gets in a car accident. They claim their back hurts. They get sent to a defense orthopedic surgeon who does a CME and reviews the medical records, talks to the plaintiff at that time, and comes to an opinion. And then a year later, the plaintiff has lumbar back surgery. Well, now the defense might go to court and say, hey, that surgery is a substantial change in the plaintiff's condition. I'd like my expert to reevaluate. And the courts will routinely do that if there's a substantial change. Here, there was no change. Olivia had not undergone any procedure. The scar was still there. Um... And then a couple of days before phase two, they claimed, no, no, it's it's really important that Dr. Barnavon see Olivia again. And when we asked why, and you know, you read the motion, the thread that they were pulling was he needs updated photographs. Well, we were like, Judge, that's, that doesn't make any sense. A, they asked us for updated photographs in October 2022. We gave them. And B, if that's really what they want, here's a couple of photographs. And we gave them, I think, photographs from, you know, four days before trial of phase two began. Here you go. And then, of course, we had a hearing on it, and then the defense started to pivot. No, it's not just for photographs. He needs to measure this and that. We fought it, and the judge ordered it. So they were entitled by court order to do the second CME, and they did. In Florida, we're allowed to go to the CME. We can bring court reporters or videographer to ensure that it's fair and what's going on is appropriate. We did that here. Well, when we got the video back, there were some comments made by Dr. Barnavon and some conduct that in my belief as an advocate, was uh, unprofessional, unbecoming, and uncomfortable, candidly. And I stepped back, and we talked about it as a trial team. And one of the things we thought about was, hey, we're going to ask this jury in phase two to compensate Olivia for, among other things, being inconvenienced, being humiliated, embarrassed. How inconvenient is it for Olivia, this child, to be dragged to a strange, you know, stranger twice, You know, not, not only once, but twice, to be examined in a sensitive area of her body, you know? Or, you know, it's just like the whole experience, not that she should be embarrassed, but it can be embarrassing, right? There was testimony that she already doesn't like her own parents to look at it or touch it. So there is no law that I am aware of, no case that says that I'm aware of that being subjected to a CME is not compensable, meaning you can't be compensated for. If anything to me, not only is there no law, but common sense supports that you should be able to recover for that. So in my opening statement in phase two of the trial, I started to preview that for the jury. We had the video of the second CME. I gave it to McDonald's. I didn't have to, but I did. And I said, hey, we intend to use this as an exhibit. They stipulated, meaning they formally agreed, yeah, put this in evidence. The jury can see it. So once I know it's in evidence, I talk about it in an opening statement. But based on some of the comments that I made in opening statement, for example, I said, I'm about to play a video of the second CME, something to the effect of I want you to listen really carefully to Dr. Barnavant's words, what he says, and I want you to watch his hands with what he does. Why did I say listen to his words? Well, and this is in evidence, it's in the public record, he started the second CME by saying something to the effect of, oh, last time I saw you, you were a little girl, but now you're a more mature, attractive young lady. For an eight-year-old girl, I found that to be a very uncomfortable and quasi-unprofessional way to speak to her. Um, so I told the jury to listen for that. The defense made a big deal about it. They, When the jury left the room, they even moved for a mistrial, suggesting the insinuation of unethical or criminal conduct, and it basically told the court, if that's the inference the defense is drawing, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but the video is the video. I'm not bringing in something collateral from another case. I'm not just tossing out allegations with no basis. We have a video of it. So this, they stipulated it's an evidence. I have to comment on it. The judge uh, disagreed with me ultimately basically saying, well, I ordered them, they, that they were allowed to do it. And we tried to distinguish and say, judge, there's a difference between entitlement to do something and whether or not it's compensable. Sure, they were entitled to do it over our objection, but it's still compulsory by its very name, uh, meaning it's not voluntary. It's not comfortable. It, it's the doctor even said in the video, I don't want to embarrass you, meaning he anticipated it might be embarrassing, which is something we can get recovered for. But the judge disagreed. so. We finished opening statements, he denied their motion for mistrial, now we put on our case. So we called the mom, Felena Holmes, who has been courageous, I I don't know, she showed, she has continued to show a tremendous amount of strength and fortitude, because it's not easy. She gets dragged in the media a lot, especially after phase one, um, because she's the one in the drive-through video, but to her credit. She's kind of done a really good job of not paying attention to that stuff and focusing on her daughter's best interest. So she she gets called up, and we had Keela do the direct examination. Now, Keela, um, not to put all her business out there, but I think, like, from a context standpoint, we got to give credit where it's due. Keela recently relocated. You know, she used to live locally, much closer to Broward County. She since moved. She traveled all the way back, several hours of a drive, basically eight and a half months pregnant. Keila is a phenomenal trial lawyer, but anybody who is anticipating the birth of their first child obviously has other things going on. She really wanted to try the case. We really wanted her to be a part of it. And she made a tremendous sacrifice to come down. So one of the witnesses that she handled was the mom. And I thought her direct examination of Miss Holmes was fantastic because we were never going to have Olivia testify in this case. We couldn't. Um, and John, maybe you can talk about this. I don't think we've ever tried a case, correct me if I'm wrong, A personal injury case where the plaintiff didn't testify and there's good reason for that if it's money damages for the plaintiff jurors want to hear from the plaintiff hey tell us in your own words how has this affected you how do you feel we couldn't do that here and maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on olivia's condition the stipulation that was read and how keela was able to have the mom be the voice for olivia
0: yeah i mean look one of the things about like pain and suffering and those non-economic damages i mean you can you can hear and have individuals around them talk about what they're going through and what they're talking about and what they see and that's kind of all we had in this case but a lot of times jurors want to hear from the victim not to get up there and say that you know that i'm complaining or that she's like you know giving up i can't do all these things but someone that you know, is vibrant, is fighting back, is trying to get through it, trying to continue on in their life, doing all of those things, but they can't. Like, like it's like it's like an anchor tied to their waist, holding them back in the life that they should be living. And, you know, you can make those, share that with the jury through the individual. In this case, not notwithstanding the fact that my client was a minor at four years old at the time this incident started, but she's eight now, and she has, a, there was a stipulation read, it's into the record, that She has an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, and because of that and a combination with her age, she has difficulty communicating in certain settings. So she was not going to be testifying. Now, that's fine. I mean, you know, we got to live in what we have, so what we did was try to explain it through the mom and through the dad. Problem is, and, and, you know, the defense stipulated to, but then they kind of really tried to capitalize on it, right? They said, oh, she's not going to counseling. So, because she's not going to counseling, that means her emotional distress isn't real, and it's like, I, I don't know you. I, I mean, just because I don't go talk to somebody doesn't mean I can't be sad, and you know. But that's what they try to say. I was like, but she's she's literally going to speech therapists. Like that's what she's doing to try to better her, you know, her academic component of the school she goes to. So they try to say that. They also try to say, well, they suggested in the med- and it's in the medical record. The, the day of this incident happened when she got just got scalded, that she was screaming for an hour, that she went to the hospital, said she has a zero out of ten pain, and that she was happy and gleeful, whatever the record said. And it's like she can't even – like she's not communicating. Like she's not saying what's happening, and everybody's like, oh, she's zero out of ten pain. She she looks at the faces in this young child. So they tried to really use that and then say, oh, well, it's not – there's no complaints in the records. It's not her. And what they did say, you know, and they, and they said this again in, in closing arguments, is that, you know, the ch- in one of the records it was uh, Dr. Stern and says that, oh, it's this is not bothering the child. Well, she's four, right? I don't think four-year-olds, they're, they're vain or, you know, but now she's eight and through mom was saying, like, I don't like it, I don't want it. I want it gone. Don't, she's stu- not, you know, aversion to being touched, aversion to, you know, people looking at it, bathing suits, like when she's being bathed, clothes putting on. I mean, to the point that, you know, when she was initially happened, you know, she was potty trained, but she was, you know, not, she was waiting um, and would wet herself because she didn't want to go through the, ha- through the hassle of actually going to the bathroom because she'd have to take her underwear off and do all those kind of things and be touched, which she didn't want to have happen. So that's real. And they suggested that everything was just her mom. You know, because it says that Olivia's not bothered by the scar. Her mom wants it to be uh, checked out, and it's like she's four.
1: She's yeah. A four it was one of those know. like damned if you do, damned if you right. don't for Miss Holmes, and that's why I'm so proud of her. Because had Miss Holmes done nothing for her daughter, putting aside your personal feelings on on parenting, had she seen "Here's my daughter. She's disfigured. I brought her to the ER. They basically said there's nothing we could do," and had she never gone anywhere else. And we go to trial. The defense would be like, how is this a big deal? She went to one ER visit and never saw another doctor. Correct. But mom didn't stop there. She brought her to a pediatrician, as the ER said she should follow up to. Pediatrician says there's really nothing more we can do. Mom, unsatisfied with that for her daughter, brings her to a dermatologist that she knows. Dermatologist says, here's all these different modalities that maybe we could do. Steroid injections, laser therapy, you know. But mom doesn't subject her four-year-old daughter to that unsatisfied hoping hoping that maybe there's something else that no one has told her yet that can help her daughter goes to dr stern who who john talked about a pediatric plastic surgeon he reconfirms what the dermatologist said there's all these different modalities but he says in his own records don't do any of them you're not going to miss the boat they'd be super frightening Uh, you know they're basically painful in and of their own right let's wait till olivia gets older so yeah you had all these medical records saying don't do anything and then the defense basically Flipped it and tried to say, well, there's no medical records that say she's did anything. Uh, or there's no medical records that say she's complaining. It's like, isn't bringing your child to specialist after specialist after specialist after specialist, isn't that evidence that suggests something was bothering Olivia? And I think this is a really good opportunity to stop and pivot for a minute. Not only was Ms. Holmes our first uh, witness in this phase, and as I mentioned earlier, Ms. Holmes has kind of been the lightning rod in the court of public opinion, You know, people trying to assign blame to her, even though that was never an issue, or just commenting on her parenting, which I find really obnoxious, candidly. But nevertheless, she perseveres. Here's what the defense did in this case. Under Florida law, the defense knew, and we told the court, we asked for a special jury instruction, the parents were never going to get the money. So whatever the jury decided to award Olivia, you know, there was never really a scenario where the parents standed to profit a nickel. The defense knew that. So we said, judge, the jury doesn't know that. And if you go through the media comments, you'll see everybody believes that the parents are driving this litigation for their own personal gain. And you know, I know the defense even knows that's never going to happen under Florida law. The judge agreed with us and, and basically said, your proposed jury instruction or some something similar to what you're proposing can be read because this jury should not be distracted and saying, well, I know the greater weight of the evidence supports a high verdict, but I'm not going to give it because I don't want the mom to recover money. Miss mo- Holmes was never going to get money. Now, go back to Ms. Holmes testifying in this trial. The defense, uh, one of the defense lawyers, the one who cross-examined her, Jennifer Miller, she elicited some responses that made it suggest, and then later in closing argument, which we'll get to shortly, that this was really the mom doing this, still pushing this. Again, never said it explicitly. Or I, I mean, maybe she did in closing. But it was always there, just beneath the surface, the suggestion to this jury that despite the jury instruction that tells you under Florida law the mom and dad stand to gain nothing, surely they think they're going to get something. That's why they're pushing it, which is just a really fancy lawyerly way of saying the mom is lying, manufacturing, fabricating, all of this, all of these stories about Olivia struggling with her scar and self-image for money. And I know the defense has a job to do, and the defense in any case is entitled to put on a defense, but I don't have to like it. I don't have to agree with it. And more importantly, I think here for our discussion today, I think it was a strategic miscalculation. Um, had the judge not instructed the jury that the parents had no financial interest in the outcome, no matter what, it would have been a big error, uh, and I think it entitled us to a new trial. But once he did instruct them that, I don't think the def- I think the defense should have pivoted. They should have put that aside because we don't know. We didn't talk to the jurors, but I after sitting through the trial you know i'm there i'm trying to think put my juror hat on and think how i'd deliberate and, and and vote i found it to be offensive that while the judge is telling me under florida law mom will never get a nickel here is jennifer miller and the rest of the defense insinuating that the mom is fabricating all these stories for financial gain so i i was kind of bothered by that yeah, I mean, but but, uh... that's,
0: but that's every case man i mean everybody's you know if you're if you if you were wrong by the negligence of a corporation you're just out for money i'm like how about this Companies invent a time machine that I can go back in time where your wrongdoing and your negligence doesn't harm my body. If you do that, then they will never have to pay money, you know. And and, and we got these fly by night like legal, uh, legal minds that are on TikTok and Instagram and social media, and they comment under and, and act like they know what they are. They're armchair lawyers, you know, yeah. that they know what they, with, without any idea what the evidence was. And in fact, I you know I was talking to one. And I commented and she was like, well, how would you know? I was like, I was the lawyer on the case. Well, yeah, I don't really care what you say. That still doesn't make sense. I was like, okay, like, you know, and I wanted what I wanted to say, and maybe I'll say it here, is like, you can't fix stupid. Okay? If you want to be stupid and you wanna be in your mind, and you want to believe whatever you want to believe, that's fine. You know, if you wanna believe Fern Gully was a real place, that's fine. Okay. I, I don't, I'm not gonna change your mind. The reality is, is we took a case against all odds, right? Constantly told, we're going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. And what did we do? We won twice. And everyone out there saying, oh, it's bullshit, then how did it come it didn't get thrown out? How come the defense didn't win? If it's such common sense that everyone thinks it is, how come the jury disagreed with everyone? Yeah, we don't
1: decide. Jurors oh. do. The jurors are people from the community. Right. So it's, I, it's not I, a situation where the judge found us more persuasive. I think we were told it was a $500 case. And we got
0: 800 grand. A little bit off, a couple decibel decimal points, you know, maybe a thousand decimal yeah. points. But, you know, that's the reality I think, is, is. I think Miss Holmes
1: concerned. did a really, you know. You know how courageous that is for her to do yeah. this? And but all- the, it's like so hard because no matter how legitimate the case, no matter how good nature a the parent is, Miss Holmes is not some professional witness. No. Mr. Caravalla is never, he's not a professionalist. He's not an expert. They don't do this. Public speaking is the number one fear in the world. And I think you saw from Ms. Holmes and her ex-husband, public speaking is not exactly their strength. And I mean that as a compliment. They're normal people. They don't walk into courtrooms and have, you know, a hundred sets of eyes staring at them, millions worldwide, hanging on every word and move they make. And nevertheless, when they testify, but especially Ms. Holmes, She came across as the genuine article, as as what she and who she is, a legitimately concerned, loving mother of a really wonderful child who has all these wonderful things going for her. But this one thing happened and now it's a hang up for life. Um, I think the jury saw the authenticity there. Again, that's not a lawyer speaking. I mean, what I'm telling you now as a lawyer, it's my words. But when you were there, it was Miss Holmes and the jury. And I think the jury found she was very credible. And I think they had every reason to so the next witness we called uh just to move forward in time was dr joshua carson john john discussed it. this was an expert we retained he wasn't a treating physician um and we said look you are a double board certified I mean, he's certified in you know trauma critical care all he does is handle burn trauma patients that's who we wanted to evaluate the case so we sent him all the photographs um the short videos of olivia when it happened the medical records the depositions everything we said look, Here's all the evidence in the case, good, bad, or otherwise. Take a look at it, and what are your opinions? So coming into trial, we knew what his opinions were. The defense had deposed him, and his opinions are pretty straightforward, that Olivia was permanently scarred, that the scar was consistent with what was reported, meaning a hot chicken nugget, that the scar was at least second degree with probably some third-degree components. I'm going to talk about that more in a moment. But that all all of the ways she could potentially manage the scar in the future... None of them would make it go away, meaning even with a scar revision surgery, you're still left with a scar. Um, He flew down from Illinois. He came into court. John talked about his demeanor. I find him to be a very likable person. Obviously, I think the jury's verdict reflects the fact that they like not only what he had to say, but how he said it. He, too, was very authentic. Um, He's not one of these hired guns where he just comes in and says whatever he thinks will be favorable to us at all costs. He comes in and he gives his honest assessment and he backs it up with peer reviewed stuff. So he came in and he talked about that. He also shed some light and expounded a little bit on how there's no correlation in the medical literature between between size of a scar and the amount of emotional trauma that someone's left with. You know, he, t- he gave examples. He's treated thousands and thousands of burn patients. He, you know, you might see someone with a third of their body disfigured by burns, and they can somehow move past it once treatment is done. But then you have someone with a very small scar, relatively speaking, and it's like the biggest thing in the world to them. And John, I think, referred to that, like to Olivia, this is like a mountain um But Dr. Carson did a really good job testifying. John, maybe you can elaborate a little bit when the defense got up and tried to cross examine him, some of the, uh, I'm going to say, shenanigans, maybe hoopla is the better word, <laughs> that they tried to pull and how Dr. Carson dealt with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, so one of the things was like a lot of everyone said, like, it's a second degree burn, but really, it, not just, they said it's a second degree burn if not a third degree burn. And that that was the testimony of the treating plastic surgeon and that was the testimony of Dr. Carson he said like look you ki- there there's portions of it that appear to be third degree burn, right? So every, and second degree burn, deep tissue second degree burn is not a little burn. It's not like a ps- nothing, you know. And everyone's like, "Oh, it's only second degree." Like, uh-uh. You know. But and so what he said was, he's like, look, there, it was a second degree there and there were levels of third degree burn. And But what he said in his deposition was, he was like, look, if I had to pick the two, I would say second degree or deep tissue second degree burn versus a third degree. Because the only way you can know about the third degree is you have to like examine it down through the skin to see if it hit through every level layer of skin. That's the only real way to know if it's a third degree burn. And they tried to impeach him with that. And he said, no, no, no. Read three lines up, which they did. He said, he told them it's possible to third degree burn, and they tried to say you didn't say it was. And what he had said was, if I have to pick the two, whether it be second degree or third degree, I'm gonna say it's a deep second degree burn because no one can know that. And even the defense expert said you can't know. No one knows really if it's a third degree burn, so which means it could be, you know. And and so everyone's saying like it's no big deal. We're talking about third degree burns from a food product that everyone says well it's the parents' fault, you know. And it's just you know boils my blood to the temperature of that hot chicken nugget uh you know when i hear things like that and so he did a great job explaining that explaining the healing process of like when you have a burn like the top lever will heal but the underlying it hasn't healed and you know i really tried to focus on that in closing argument um him only being the (coughs) the only true expert because they tried to say like oh it healed in three weeks it's no big deal and that's not The case. I mean, there were there were photographs that showed four months later she still has scabbing in the central area, which ended up being the raised portion of her scar that she has permanently. Like this little girl is disfigured for the rest of her life, and people want to be dismissive. And you know, it's it's interesting. Everyone that calls it frivolous and says it's bullshit until it happens to their kid, then they're gonna be like, yeah, it's not frivolous, you know. And and they, you know, that's what we commonly see. Everyone who is a proponent to change the way lawsuits work or to or be on board with corporations like I never understood why everyone just they're like it's all about personal responsibility well what about the corporate responsibility the people that take your money make billions of dollars a year and they do it without any regard for safety and then and everyone wants to just give them a free pass like under the law according to this United States Supreme Court corporations are people too so they have personal responsibility in Wisconsin corporations can go to jail so let's not act like these are holier than now businesses. Like everyone's just taking advantage of them. What when have you heard about cases like this? Did you don't?
1: Well, and this is the key, I think, too. These this talking point about taking advantage of the legal system, taking advantage of a big corporation. Nobody can do that when you go to trial because it's not up to the lawyers. It is literally up to. People from the community who, you know, presumptively know nothing about the yep. case but hear everything about the case, and yep. then decide what's fair. So, a jury verdict is not a lawyer saying ha-ha, we win." Right. It's the community saying the corporation did wrong, or the community should be uh, the corporation should be responsible. Right. We for didn't, so We didn't say that. those those
0: those jurors agreed with us. You know, they, and they, I see they, a lot
1: of other comments too. Let me just say this: <clears throat> people see the photographs of the burns because they're out there. It's a public proceeding, and the media covers it. They see photographs of the burns, and what I. What the number one comment I see is some variation of impossible to have been caused by a nugget. Impossible, impossible. Keep this in mind, folks. The jury wasn't asked to decide what caused it. Why McDonald's and Upchurch stipulated they formally agreed, admitted that her scar, those burn photos, they were caused by a nugget that was sold in a Happy Meal. It was never even disputed. So, all the people out there saying it's you know, it's manufactured by the mom, the mom burned her own child, or Something else must have done that. It's impossible. It's so far from that. It's the opposite end of the spectrum. It was admitted by McDonald's, right. despite all the fight they put up. That was never a point of contention.
0: Yeah, and that, you know, and even with that, people are like, "I still don't believe it." I was like, "Ah, well, guess what? I don't give a shit what you believe. I really don't. I mean, you know, I'm not in the business of caring what people believe. Uh, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about my firm. I don't care what you think about our clients. Like the the reality is, is a juror, you know, was impaneled." Under the what the Constitution provides to resolve a dispute between two individuals, and they selected what the greater weight, the more persuasive force of the evidence showed, which was McDonald's was responsible, Upchurch was responsible for the harm that they caused to this little girl, and the tune of that in her damages in the past and into the future was eight hundred thousand dollars, and that's the only truth yeah. that matters. And you know, and you know, ultimately, if there's a, a post-trial motions and. For whatever reason, if a new trial is granted, we will be back on this podcast with a, an update of how we will go to trial again, and we will get more. And you'll hear. I it believe right. that would. And, be And the I case. believe and it, we'll hear it here first, and we'll do it again. And if it comes back again, we'll do it again. You know, and we won't sleep or rest until justice is had. You know, especially for these. And murders.
1: these are, by the way, folks. These are public proceedings, and we had court reporters, Genie reporting is the agency that covered it. You know, a lot of people are like, "Oh, who's spinning what?" For the people who are totally invested yeah, yeah. in this story and really want to get their, the truth, I mean, you're never going to get from a transcript body language and an intonation of voice, but you can order transcripts and read them verbatim of every word that was said by everyone in the courtroom, witnesses and lawyers right. and judges alike, and you can draw your own conclusions. And I think that would change a lot of yeah, minds. You can you can There's watch closing arguments.
0: You can watch closing arguments from you – can, you can watch my yeah. closing arguments. You can watch – Miss um, Miller's the closing arguments, and you can watch Miss Smith in rebuttal and see what happens, and see what you think about hearing about the case, seeing the photos, seeing the evidence, watching the powerpoints, you know, and see what you think, and you know, if the jury came to, to the right decision. So, and I and we think to just
1: top off or to summarize rather the other witnesses, um, all of them are important, but I think it's interesting how it unfolded. So after Dr. Carson, um, Olivia's dad testified. Mr. Caravallo, he another very soft-spoken gentleman, but John did a really good job with that direct examination, eliciting what I felt was two really important points. One, he received a phone call from his then wife, Olivia's mom, Miss Holmes, like within minutes after the burn actually happened. And all he could hear was like blood curdling screams on the other end. He couldn't even tell if it was son, his son or daughter, his son was five, Olivia was four at the time. He just knew it was one of his children in, you know, screaming in a way that he had never heard before. When mom brings parents, uh, kids home and he meets them there, And he sees what's going on i mean those are screams he'll never forget and mom and dad both testified olivia was screaming like that for hours uh for a really long period of time and there was nothing they could really do to stop it so i thought his testimony was really important on that point the immediacy after the burn how how much pain and, and suffering she endured and then the second part of it was i thought the defense kind of stepped it in here they were like oh well olivia's eight now and some of the testimony that you just said was that you know, when you bathe her, she doesn't like you to go in that area because, you know, it's like a, an issue for her. Doesn't she bathe herself at eight, old, at eight years old? And he's like, no, she still doesn't, which means, you know, this burn is unique. Every plaintiff's case is unique to them. So like this burn, even all things being equal on somebody else, maybe would not affect them as much or maybe even more. But to Olivia, with all she's going on in her life, she calls it her nugget. She tells her parents she wants it gone. It is a big point for them. There was testimony about, I mean, they would decide, like, do we even want to go out of the house today? Because we're going to have to prepare Olivia. We have to put on your car seat. Or if I'm going grocery shopping, I have to put you in the front of the cart. And, you know, or we're going to the pool. People might see this. So the parents did a really good job, I think, of bringing to life Olivia's voice. And the jury heard her through them. After we rested, I want to talk a little bit about some strategy stuff that maybe the lawyers can appreciate. So before phase two of trial began, um, the defense asked to take a deposition of Olivia's older brother he's only a year older um i'll spare his name for purposes of this podcast and we said okay so they took his deposition they must have felt like the her brother said something favorable because before trial they gave us notice of their intention they wanted to read his transcript to the jury no not a thing uh under rule 1.330 of the Florida rules of civil procedure it specifies how you can use the deposition of a witness and basically unless they're unavailable or unless they're an expert. You have to bring a witness in court, and for obvious reasons. It would be a terrible system if all you could do is just read statements from people. So we told the court, if they want his testimony, they've got to call him live. We'll bring him. Just tell us when you want him here. And lo and behold, when push came to shove and McDonald's had to decide, am I going to drag in a nine-year-old child to basically testify against his sister? Not that against is my word, not theirs, but I think their hope was he would say something favorable for them, not his sister. They decided not to do it, and I think that was a good decision by them. Um, it wouldn't have looked good in my opinion. Then there's an issue of treating providers. Before trial, the defense told us, we're gonna call Olivia's pediatrician. We're gonna call Dr. Stern, the, the plastic surgeon she saw. We're gonna call the dermatologist. All these people, you know, during calls, I was led to believe this was a big deal. They were subpoenaing all these doctors. They're gonna drag them out of their practice. I think the idea that they were trying to convey to us was, there's unfavorable things in these medical records that we're gonna have these doctors come test. We said, come on, let's go. We're done. We rested three witnesses. We're done. Case is yours right here on day one. They didn't call any of the treaters. Um,
0: yeah, they just called their so, one their one expert. That's it. You know. Yeah,
1: so it turned out to be a bluff by them. Uh, but those records came in evidence. So then we go to closing argument. I want to talk a little bit about that. The media did report the amount of money that we asked for: fifteen million dollars. Um, John did the first closing, which is the most substantive part. I want John in a moment to explain more or less the, the the method that we gave the jury, like to support that number. But there's more to a closing argument than just the ask, the amount of money you're giving, asking a jury to return. Closing argument is supposed to summarize all of the evidence that the jury has now heard and seen, and explain, but through advocacy, why it supports the claims here. So. John did a really good job in the first closing argument, which he had 45 minutes to give, of explaining to the jury first all of the categories under Florida law that Olivia was entitled to recover from. Like you hear a word pain and you immediately assume physical pain, and that's natural. And sure, physical pain is something you can be compensated for, but isn't there also emotional pain, right? Those are two different concepts. The defense really tried to cabin those terms in a very literal sense and say, there's no more physical pain. John got up there and said, we agree. You know, the scar is healed. It's still there, but it is healed now. She shouldn't be in any physical pain. Don't give her money for that, right? Don't give her money for that. And I think we score some credibility points by being credible and honest when we we review the evidence. But does that mean that she doesn't have emotional pain? This girl's eight years old, doesn't want her own parents to see it Touch it. She insists she wants it gone. The mom testified through emotional testimony. She doesn't even know how to yet explain to Olivia that there's really nothing that will ever take it away. Okay, you know I, I don't look forward to that day for Miss Holmes to have to explain it. But John, maybe you could walk the the listeners out there. We did ask for fifteen million, but how did we get to that number?
0: So you know Jordan got up an opening statement and basically said like five million for the past and ten million for the future. And you know what I what I the difficulties with the past pain and suffering is because. Generally, what I like to do is a like a per diem argument of like we take all of those separate categories and you look at the evidence and say, well, he, how am I going to do this on a um, – for the next 75 years, right? In her case, it was 73.8 years.
1: Meaning her future life expectancy.
0: Right. So it, it's not – it's a difficult proposition. So what you do is this, I said, forget the time, forget 73.8 years, let's talk about one hour, right? What's the simplest unit of time and measurement for something like, you know, everyone gets paid by the hour or, you know, waiting for an hour, whatever. And I say, and you go through each one of these categories, right, pain and suffering, physical, emotional, mental anguish, inconvenience, uh, disfigurement, and loss of enjoyment of life. Those were the categories we had in this particular case. And I said, and go around and go through each category, because she has each category of damages, and I talked a little bit about each category of damages, and I say, assign a value between $1 and $10 an hour, and then you ultimately come to a number, and that's what I did for the future damages. The number, obviously, the highest one would be disfigurement because she's got the permanent scarring, and I said, I uh, ended up at a number that was $25 an hour, and I said, and then once you guys say, this is what's fair and reasonable, that if we took another person out of the community, we brought them in here, and we said we're going to subject you to all of this and scar you for the rest of your life we'll give you 25 bucks an hour to deal like you know and when you n- simply take that number and then you do simple math you multiply it out right and i don't do 24 hours in the day i do 16 hours in the day because 8 hours you're sleeping so i don't think you need to recover for i mean you may hear what people have it's disruptive of sleep but in this particular case, we d- we took it out, so it was twenty five bucks an hour times sixteen hours a day times three hundred sixty five days in a year times seventy three point eight years that came about to about ten point seven seven four. I think six hundred was the number uh, millions of dollars. So that's. But when you think about it, it's only twenty five bucks an hour, so, but it just seems so long because it's seventy three point eight years, and that's what I kind of stressed. The jury is like, we never get to come back. You know we don't get to check on them in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 40 years and then i also say well, think about the value of a dollar today it's not going to be the same as it is in the year 2090 which the verdict still had to be there for and i said a oh, good way to, to know that use your common sense go back 73 years to 1950. what was the value of a dollar back then compared to today obviously significantly significantly different and so those are the kind of things you tell the jury and you know we present that and then you know i gave them a little preview of what the defense's story i call them defendant's story you know right what's their story so you know and they have they have a variety of stories and what and what they did is they got up and literally did the stories that i had previewed the evidence for them of why that was not the case and so i think that's a good way to kind of undercut what they do and then they get up and say exactly what you say they're going to say and tell you after you've told them why it's wrong so and well and, and
1: also let me just say this too We have to give recommendations to jurors in closing argument. Um, We can't insist on anything. We just say, here's all the evidence, and here's what we think the evidence supports. And in this case, it was $15 We don't just leave it out there, as John just explained. We show them how we get there. Remember, growing up in grade school, show your math, show your work. We do that for them. It's just a recommendation, though. I love the fact that the media took an interest in this case. I think it's an important thing in any case. You know, courts are public proceedings, and I think it would be... More beneficial for the country if more trials were covered, not just those that can be sensationalized. Um, And media has a job to do. And part of it is to get people to read or listen or watch whatever they're publishing. And I understand that. But when you see headlines like ask for 15 million, it could have just as easily been reported plaintiff asked for $25 an hour. And I think if the headlines were that, very few eyebrows would have been raised because that's ultimately what we asked for. Yes, when you do the math, the final number is 15 but it was really just 25 bucks an hour for the future. And so it's just like, it's important, I think, to keep in mind you know, that things are put in context however they need to. People have their own personal biases, mm-hmm. agendas, whatever, but those are the facts. You can read the transcript, that's what we asked for. And for those out there saying this case was worthless, meaning worth nothing, McDonald's in their closing argument said you could and basically should give Olivia $100,000 for the past four years, the past pain and suffering past non-economic damages. But then they said she's fine. So there really shouldn't be anything for the future. And then they started to equivocate. And I thought strategically, this was a misstep. This is just my personal, you know, take on it as an advocate, you know, mm-hmm. looking back now at the benefit of hindsight. I think it's hard to tell a jury jury she, she's entitled to nothing in the future, but then say, but maybe if anything, 4,700 bucks for that scar revision surgery, that maybe she'll get But, you know, if, and then they said, like, well, and then maybe another 50K on top. And all of a sudden it went from no more than 100 to, well, maybe 100 to 156,000. It became, in my opinion, less convincing the more the defense kept suggesting different numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I want to say two things about that. One, if you're out there and you're saying this case is worthless, McDonald's conceded in closing argument essentially that the case was at least worth 100 grand. Okay. Jury came back 8X that. And the second thing to consider is it wasn't worthless because all of the evidence was basically undisputed. This scar was never going away. So, if under Florida law, disfigurement, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, it's to cover scarring, if disfigurement is recoverable under Florida law and it's undisputed that she's disfigured for life, she's got to be entitled to something. And so, I think the jury did its best to consider all of the evidence, the recommendations from us, the recommendations from the defense. And the last thing I'll say is, we are advocates. Our job is to keep our our client's best interests in mind, and in a case like this, to recover the full and fair value of justice. Did we recover every penny of what we asked for? No. Does any plaintiff lawyer routinely uh, get jury verdicts exactly what they asked for? No. Often, jury verdicts, I think, beyond a reflection of what the actual evidence and law is, they are also a reflection of human nature, which is to find compromise. Lawsuits are a dispute between two sides here. You know one plaintiff versus two defendants but still it's two sides to a dispute and i think it's totally natural and i find it to be very commonplace that the jury even when the plaintiff wins doesn't give what the plaintiff recommends but also doesn't do what the defense recommends they they Mm -hmm. come somewhere in between the two and that's what they did here and i was asked after the trial i I am totally satisfied with this in any case that i go in all i want is for the jury to listen be fair i want them to consider all the evidence all the arguments Really apply the law, nothing else. Set aside your sympathies and tell me what the case is worth. And the good news here is the case was worth $800,000 when McDonald's said it would basically would never win. And if we did, it was worth far, far less. And um, the fact that the, the most important thing I take away here is the fact that McDonald's was basically of the position and belief at trial that future damages don't exist, pain, suffering, emotional trauma loss of the ability to enjoy life. Their position was essentially, that's nonsense, there's nothing there. The jury gave 400000 for future damages and 400000 in the past, which is another way of saying they gave equal amounts, both past and future, which to me reflects they totally rejected the notion that McDonald's was suggesting, which is that Olivia had no future damages. They showed that the past was just as important as the future, and that's why I say it's a totally just verdict. And uh, we don't know what McDonald's is going to do. Motions for a trial, appeals—we don't know. I, I'm sure they'll pursue all of that, and we'll we'll fight it out in the appellate courts. But for present purposes, I feel really good about it because it was a very challenging case legally. Took a long time to get there, and you know, these are the types of people I want to fight for. These are the types of people our firm exists to help serve. Families like this, a child like this. You know, my hope is that one day whenever it is, 10 years, 15 years from now, whenever it is that Olivia has enough wherewithal that maybe she'll look back at her parents and it's like, thank them. Thank you for having the strength to pursue this and not sweep it under the rug because you're shy or don't like public speaking or don't want to be dragged in public, uh, in media. Um, But if nothing else, we have now made a difference. We have shifted the course of the future of Olivia's life. We have helped just a little bit right or wrong, by two big corporations, very powerful corporations. And I'm proud that we stood up to them toe-to-toe, two separate trials, and two separate juries unanimously agreed with our side. And um, I'm grateful to Keela for trying this case with us. I'm grateful, grateful to House and Lewis and everybody else in our firm, even the non-lawyers in our firm who work with us. Their opinions are invaluable. And you know we worked this case up for years, and we get opinions from everybody. It's a group effort. Mm-hmm. And this is a really big firm win for us, and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's always good to win, you know. And, and what I, what I don't think people realize is they always say like, oh, you know, when, uh, the plaintiffs' personal injury lawyers, you know, they take a lot of money there. I was like, do you understand that we don't get paid unless we win? What other What other person? You know, like maybe with sales, if you don't sell, you don't get paid. But if so, stand about put your money where your mouth is, right. you know. Defense lawyers, they get paid to fight. We get paid to win. And I think that's the difference. And so it takes a bit of courage for the plaintiffs. It takes a courage for the lawyers. You know, we invest our time, energy, and money with no guarantee of return. And I think to suggest, like, oh, we're in it for the money, I'm in it to fight for people. And if we lose, we lose. But, you know, I'm going down swinging. And this was that case. And fortunately for us, we were able to pull out a win, um, you know, for – our client who's like Jordan said, we are going to change the course for life for the better. And, you know, at the end of the day, when I lay my, my head on the pillow at night, that's the kind of things that keeps me motivated to keep going and all the public scorn and scrutiny that I may face. So what ain't going to change my life. So, um, you know, I'm, and look
1: to the colleagues out there and I say colleagues it's a broad term to the people out there, lawyers and non-lawyers alike who follow the story or are catching up to the story For those of you that have reached out to us privately um, to share their insights, many of which are overwhelmingly positive, I I want to thank you on behalf of the whole firm. It means a lot. Uh, We fought really hard for a really long time with no prospects of actual recovery. In fact, we were told we would lose with certainty. And there's a lot of lawyers out there reaching out saying how how excited they are because uh, they they have to be self-critical. And say, man, I might not even have taken that case. And if I did, I right. probably would have tried to settle it for a fraction of what you got. And right. I never would have tried it. And if I did try it, I never would have asked for this. And so I feel good that um, if nothing else, maybe we can motivate, inspire, or be a be a sounding board for our colleagues out there who might have similar cases with or even just other challenging cases, polarizing cases, and show them like sometimes you've got a risk. You've got to be willing to roll the dice for your clients. You Absolutely. know, it can't always be a negotiated settlement. Some cases have to be tried in courtrooms. This was one of those cases. We did it twice. We won twice. If we have to do it a third time, which I don't think we will, we'll do that too. You know, we don't give up for our clients, but for everyone out there, I just want to thank you for listening today. If you're watching live, especially um, if you have some comments or you're watching it later, feel free to drop some comments. Justin's really good about forwarding us those. and We can always um, either do another show to explain them or reach out to you. You know, we really want to, this is clearly a, a story that's captured the attention of the country and even beyond America, and for those people out there who have more than just sarcastic comments to make, but are, have genuine intrigue, I want I want to be here to help educate you about the case. And um, it's a matter of public record, so we have nothing nothing to hide. So, thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more content as we continue to release new episodes of On Justice Podcast. And if this is your first episode that you're watching, feel free to go back on Spotify, YouTube, or any other platform that you enjoy podcasts. Because we've been doing this now, I believe, over a year. And we cover a variety of topics in different cases.
0: And so, and we also have a, a our hot soup case that was another similar food born um, or food hot food product case that we handled as well. Had a full podcast on it, so check it out. I mean, you know, it's not really a, a niche for us, but it's something that we have. Like any case, if we're going to bring it, we're going to find out everything we can about it and find a way to win uh, and really to be over prepared and and to outwork the other side. Like which is what we do in every case. So. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, uh, for this episode. We'll, we'll see you guys soon. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, next time come around. One, two, three, four. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth just set you free. I want
1: the truth. You can't handle the truth.
0: Great moments are born in great opportunities.